Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, exciting day in college football on uh, Wednesday. The networks released their kickoff times, their selections for some of the early season games and, and you know some of the bigger games throughout the season. And we want to welcome back a guest we had uh, a little bit ago on the podcast, Derek Crocker, who is the person at Fox who schedules the games. Who better to debrief us on some of the big announcements that were made? Derek, welcome back. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me back. I'm a huge fan of you guys. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, this is like having the wizard behind the curtain for us. Uh, so many questions. I don't know, Stu, we've been covering the sport for a long time, but this has always been kind of a a very intriguing part of how the process, you know, you kind of know what games you think you'll have, but then to see it actually unfold, it's it's, it's fascinating. Um, and so it's a lot different this, this year because, the, the, because Fox now has the Big Ten, and so you're seeing... I think some fans who maybe didn't realize that saw the, the announcement come out and go, wait a minute, the Ohio State-Michigan game is on Fox? Wow. So um, why don't we start there, Derek? Well, first of all, a two-part question here. For the most part, people are used to, you know, they get into the season and they got to wait, you know, 12-day notice, sometimes six-day notice to know uh, which the selections the TV networks made. How are you able to announce certain games like Ohio State-Michigan before the season? And most importantly, how is that game, which has been on ABC for so, so long, how did it get on Fox? So uh, the first part of your question is we decided to pre-announce some of those matchups like Ohio State-Michigan, like Notre Dame-Michigan State, Bedlam, Penn State-Ohio State, um, primarily because as part of the draft process, we have the number one overall selection um, in each of those conferences in that particular week. So we felt comfortable in selecting those particular high-end games to really showcase you know, what we believe, and you mentioned the Big Ten, and um, what we think is the best schedule that we've, you know, we have in our, we've ever had in our history. Um, and we want, really want to show, showcase um, just the strength of, of our lineup um, and really show that, you know, we, we're going to have just a, a tremendous slate as we go throughout the season. And then the second part of Ohio State-Michigan and how, you know, that one particular game ended up on our air, I think Commissioner Delaney's, you know, said in the past that Fox owns um, the overall number one selection. So, you know, it doesn't, it's not probably a genius that you have to assume that, you know, that game last year was probably the most, was the most watched game um, of a college football season. Obviously, the rivalry and their tradition. Um, so it was, it was almost a no brainer for us. Okay. So just to be clear for people who might not understand it, there is a draft that takes place among the networks uh, for each conference. And you're saying that in the Big Ten deal, the new Big Ten deal with Fox and ESPN, Fox has basically the number one kind of like in the NFL draft the number one overall pick that's correct uh, I have a question for you Derek so uh, this is obviously self-serving you know we both work at Fox uh, I work on Fox college football broadcasts uh, but what's different not just the big 10 aspect but how have the other deals kind of changed in terms of we have also, obviously the Pac-12 and the Big 12, which we've had before, uh, in terms of where we where we pick on those games per week. Is it a similar deal with the Big 12 and Pac-12 as it has been in the previous years, or is it a little different this year as well? Uh, no, it's the same. Um, it, you know, each individual year, there's the draft order changes slightly between the various conference television partners, but um, for the most part, in terms of the equitable um, 
you know, how the, how the draft goes throughout the process, it's, it's the same. So the same number of games, the same type of pick structure, um, that, that doesn't change. Um, one thing as by adding, you know, the Big Ten Conference is that throughout the whole season, we will have um, number one picks in each of those conferences um, throughout the season. How often, uh, I mean, is it as simple as one week we have the number one pick in the Pac-12 and the other week ESPN has it and the same deal with the Big 12, or is it, is it a little more complicated than that? A, a little bit more complicated than that because it's obviously a draft process. So kind of going back to what Stu was saying earlier is it's kind of like playing fantasy football or an NFL draft. So as you have, say, the number one selection, um, you know, was, you know, Ohio State, Michigan, you're picking not necessarily that particular game, but you're picking the number one selection on that particular date. So um, as you go through each of the conference drafts, you're selecting, you know, 11-25, the first pick, you know, we're selecting 9-16 on a, as a second pick, um, so on and so forth as you kind of get to the end of your total game counts. So why don't we look at the start from the top here, because, you know, you were able to announce the first three or four weeks of games. Um, let's look at week one, Thursday night, the 31st, Tulsa, Oklahoma State on FS1. Um, in general, you know, obviously the Thursday, Friday night games throughout the season get announced ahead of time. It's not like you find out on two weeks' notice that your games will move to Thursday. Um, how does that come about? Like, do, does does Fox approach Oklahoma State and say, would you be interested in playing a game on Thursday, or the conference sets that? How does how did that end up being the opening Thursday night game? Yeah, that was a collective effort um, between Oklahoma State and um, and Tulsa to agree to move from Saturday to Thursday. That happens with any of the um, non-conference games um, that you see um, basically that end up on a Thursday or Friday. There has to be some kind of collective agreement um, to move games from Saturday to Thursday or to a Friday of that opening weekend. In that vein, uh, we have a pretty compelling matchup on the Sunday, which is typically a wide open uh, day. And it was Texas A&M at UCLA because NFL hasn't started yet. And I know ESPN also has uh, West Virginia, Virginia Tech that day. Uh, do When you guys talk, do, do people want to jump into that slot because they know you're going to get way more visibility on a Sunday than you will when, when you have so many other games? I mean, how how – how either receptive are they? Are they? Do schools come up and because I know coaches like it because they get that window. It, it's a combination of things. I think every school treats it a little bit differently. Um, it, you know, it's it. There is a because of you know if you look at you know games that would, that traditionally have been played on that Sunday in years past, they've done um, typically better than a game on a Saturday. Um, so I think in particular this this one game. Um, the schools um, saw the, you know, the opportunity to be able to schedule a game in prime time on Fox broadcast on a date which you mentioned um, doesn't typically have um, strong competition. And that was a that was something that really started to take hold last year with the Texas Notre Dame game uh, that did so well on ESPN. Now you can just see as soon as that happened, you realize like we're going to be seeing this more and more. And so now this year we've got uh, dueling Sunday night primetime games in terms of Saturday. You've got four games between Big Fox and FS1. You've got at noon, Maryland at Texas, the Tom Herman debut, uh, FS1. 3.30, these are all Eastern, UTEP at Oklahoma on Big Fox. 7.30 in prime time on Big Fox, Purdue, Louisville at Lucas Oil Stadium. Lamar Jackson against and Jeff Brom's first game at Purdue. 
10.30. Against his old school. Against his old school. And then 10.30, Montana State at Washington State on FS1. When this came out, I saw a few people ask, wait a minute, why isn't the Maryland-Texas game on Big Fox and the UTEP-Oklahoma game on FS1? So I think in in particular, the the Maryland-Texas game, obviously with Tom Herman in his first game, we really wanted to put it in in the best time slot that we, we felt um, could you know showcase to the, the most amount of viewers. So it, we take a lot of different factors into place. And in the particular, you know, if you look at the competitive landscape on the day, um, the the noon Eastern slot felt like for us is the best time slot um, to be able to put that game in and showcase um, across the country. So that that was in particular that game. Um, while UTEP Oklahoma was on Fox broadcast, I think it just in general um, we wanted to showcase you know some of the big, biggest brands, some of the best players. Um, you know, across you know across the country, and obviously Baker Mayfield is a huge huge story in prime time. You know, Purdue playing Louisville. Um, you know, with Lamar Jackson and his his first game, the Heisman Trophy winner. Um, those are all comp- compelling storylines for us. And to that point about the you know the the competition, that uh, it kind of makes sense when you look at the the greater lineup that day. Maryland, Texas will be opposite Akron, Penn State. Um, Bowling Green, Michigan State, and Kent State, Clemson, whereas the 3.30 window that where UTEP, Oklahoma is, has got to go up against Florida, Michigan, and Temple, Notre Dame. So regardless of whether it's on cable or broadcast, obviously, probably more people are going to see the Texas-Maryland game at the time slot that it is. Derek, have uh, do we know which crews are doing these games yet? <laughs> That's a very self, self, uh, <laughs> self-interest question. Unfortunately, that's not my uh, that's not my job. Uh, but next week's sure guest. <laughs> next week on the Audible, we welcome on Judy Boyd. <laughs> okay, okay let's, uh, let's. You want Bruce? You want to move to September ninth? I do. Uh, so we have a you know last year Stanford and USC things really started to turn for USC after after this game. Uh, that is that is the biggest game. But the game I I wanted to ask you about is actually. Before that, um, and it's a 4:30 game. It's on Fox and Fox Deportes. It is Nebraska at Oregon. There's some nice buzz about Nebraska going in. Oregon obviously is rebuilding through Willie Taggart. Uh, Stu and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. You know, when we started three years ago, this would have been like one of the biggest, bigger games that we would have had. You know, like more marquee name. And here it is, where it's like the undercard. Yeah, really of that, which is kind of speaking to the direction of, of how much the, the brand has grown in this space in college football. I mean, even the FS2 game that day at noon, East Carolina at West Virginia, you know, that probably would have been that probably would have been a, a mid-level game for us. Now it's on FS2. It just kind of speaks to the direction when you guys are juggling this, all this stuff, um, how much do you do how much flexibility do you have when it comes to okay this is going to go to fs2 we're because i know also you start to run into other issues you have baseball sometimes you have ufc stuff right so is it does that get really complicated once you get past this date or is this at this point week two you still have a lot of flexibility no that you're right it we have there's a ton of factors like i've mentioned before whether it's 
you know, just having the type of inventory that we do, do now have with, you know, with adding the Big Ten and, you know, along with these marquee games, non-conference in the Pac-12, and then also in the Big 12 with East Carolina, West Virginia, having those, that type of quality, you know, is, you know, are good problems to have, honestly, for us. Um, but we do have to factor in what we also have from other um, or other television partners, whether it's the UFC, like you mentioned, whether it's Major League Baseball, for instance, on Fox broadcast that day, we're going to have a Major League Baseball in the early afternoon leading into the Nebraska to Oregon window. So all those things factor in, and there's only a certain number of windows that we have on a certain day and a certain network. I look at that September 9th, you've got Nebraska, Oregon, and Stanford USC on Fox, and you've got Minnesota, Oregon State on FS1. I mean, given that the Pac-12 has deals with ESPN and uh, Pac-12 Network, obviously, you know, is there something about that week that you're able to get, you know, I mean, it looks like there's no, yeah, there's no Big Ten game on Fox that day. Well, there is the, the day before, though. Ohio at Purdue on Friday night, right? And you've got a couple Big 12, but you got three. I mean, it's a look, kind of a loaded day in the Pac-12. I just looked it up. There's also BYU-Utah that day on another, on ESPN, and, um, Boise State, Washington State, I mean, and Houston, Arizona, and San Diego State, Arizona State. I think I've just answered my own question of how the heck did you get these three <laughs> decent Pac-12 games on the, on the same day? Yeah, no, you're right. It just, it's, it just ended the way, you know, the school scheduled the non-conference games in this particular week. The Pac-12 was um, had some very strong marquee matchups. Um, does this happen every year? No. I think this is, um, I don't know if it's an anomaly either, but it's, you know, it's kind of a nice problem to have, honestly, on, on September 9th. And, you know, all the networks, you know, us and, you know, the other two Pac-12 network television partners were, you know, pretty aggressive in trying to schedule those games on um, on some of our biggest networks. Hey, Derek, I have a question here, and maybe this this relates to what you were saying before about uh, available windows. But so looking in October, you we have on October 7th, Three games on Big Fox, a triple header, a noon game, a 4 p.m. game, and an 8 p.m. All times are obviously Eastern. Then the next week, October 14th, there's four games on FS1. By the way, in that same Saturday, October 7th, in addition to the three games on Big Fox, there's four games on FS1. So that's seven games. Dawned on me, I don't even know if we have that many crews, but that's another story. But the next week, we don't have any games on Big Fox. We have four games on FS1. So is that simply a matter of, is that baseball taking that up or how does that work? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we, like I said before, we had to factor in all of our various, you know, programming commitments and between October 7th and October 14th, you know, it's just a matter on the October 14th. We have, we have more, more commitments on that day than we do on October 7th, October 7th. We have basically, um, open windows for college football. Um, so we, we were able to fill all of our, all of those windows um, with games. And that's, this will be the first time I think we've ever had seven games between uh, Fox Broadcast and FS1. And it also start October 7th will be the first time we've ever had a triple header of college football on, um, on Fox Broadcast. So I think that that's an exciting day for us. Um, and then the October 14th, um, the reason we don't have um, broadcast is just because we have other programming commitments, whether um, it could be um, a baseball game, it could be a NASCAR race, um, those kinds of things. Seven October 7th, seven games in one day, and all of which will have halftime shows. Ladies and gentlemen, tune in to see Rob Stone <laughs> be on television continuously for 13 hours. 
Well, do we also run the risk that day? Is this the day where we we give America a solo Tim Brando broadcast to conserve our our on air talent? And just Tim gets the whole gets the whole four hours. How about Tim calls the noon game and then we fly him out to the eleven p.m. Pac twelve game? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that chuckle means no. Okay. Well, sorry, Tim. We were trying for, on your behalf for more airtime, but I guess that's um, September 16th, the big one, a prime time, Texas, USC. Uh, you mentioned in the Big Ten, you know, you're able to get uh, Michigan, Ohio State before the season because of the draft order. This would seem like it would have been also one of those very high up uh, preseason choices. It, it was. It, you know, I think that, you know, along with all the games in the first three weeks that we chose, whether it's Texas and UCLA, Stanford, USC, Nebraska, Oregon, Texas, USC, all those games. Um, were pretty high draft picks, and but the reason we can announce, you know, like the, all those games on September 16th, is because um, across all the various conferences, the first three weeks um, are pre-announced, um, as you saw yesterday. So that's why you see um, games September 16th announced, but maybe not all the games on September 23rd announced. So with all due respect, Derek, so now we have games for the first three weeks of the season, then we get to. The fourth week of the season, we have a Friday game, Utah at Arizona, and then there's a Saturday, one of the big Fox games has already decided, Notre Dame at Michigan State, but then we have a bunch of to be announced. Since there are, there are not going to be any results for the next you know, two months or so, what do you do between now and then? Uh, <laughs> working on college basketball. Literally, right, right before you guys, uh, we jumped on the phone to, to have this podcast as I was uh, talking with a colleague of mine um, about uh, about Big Ten basketball, actually. So um, just one thing rolls into the next for us. I mean, that must be, you know, you've added, um, you know, a certain number of football games this year with the Big Ten coming on. But my gosh, we must have just like, I don't know if you know the exact number off the top of your head, but so many more basketball games now. We do. I mean, I think just in totality of adding the Big Ten conference, um, and then co- in combination with, you know, our current partners, I don't want to, you know, discredit them, the Pac-12 and the Big 12 and the Big East and, and men's basketball and men's women's basketball. Um, I think in totality, it's just a huge step forward for us, um, you know, with all the various conference partners now that we have. We think that our lineup, um, especially in the college football, um, stacks up with, you know, you know, with any of our competitors now. Hey, last thing, Derek. Your job, since since I've kind of gotten to know you and watched you do this, like, just seems like so much fun. Like, I would think any college football fan, like you described it like fantasy football, basically, would love to do this. Um, how? How does one become a college football scheduler for a network? <laughs> Great question. I think it's, you know, it's a combination of, you have to have, um, you know, definitely a passion for college sports. That's first and foremost. Um, you know, if you don't love... Um, watching college football on a Saturday or every day of the week watching college basketball, um, you know, the job's going to get very mundane. Um, but if you really love, you know, the passion and rivalries and, you know, things that you guys love and most of the college sports world loves, um, this job's extremely appealing. I, I got there through, um, basically, I, I as an intern here at Fox, um, and just luckily, you know, I started at the very bottom as an assistant in the larger programming group. Um, and one of my first jobs was um, to work um, on the college football schedules. And I always gravitated um, more to the, towards the college side than any of our other, um, you know, partners or, or sports that we that we cover. So um, it was more of just a natural progression for me. Um, 
you know, to kind of really focus my efforts on the college football space and college basketball space. So, and I, I've loved it ever since. Um, How much arguing? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I think it's just a combination of a little bit of luck, honestly, and then just having the passion, um, you know, for the, you know, for your job. How much arguing and debating is going on, you know, in the offices, like when this process, not, not on the basketball side, but at least on the college football side to get to this point within Fox, is it a lot? Are you, are you guys, um, pretty much saying, okay, this is how it's going to play out. Cause obviously you have to anticipate what other people may, may have value on. So are you, when you, you do this, do you, you know, do you know what their schedule? Cause obviously people know that, that Fox has the world series. People know how that, you know, Fox is invested big in UFC. So there's some other factors you're going to have to juggle around. Do you guys look at it, especially when you're competing against ESPN, which has, you know, a lot of real estate there to fill. I mean, is it looked at differently? I mean, I think just in general, you know, Fox as a whole, we have a very bullish mindset on, on college sports evidenced by, you know, now having the big 10 conference. So in terms of deciding, you know, where games are, are chosen, um, there's definitely a lot of debate, um, you know, between um, our group. I think it's, you know, it, it, I think to get the best schedule, you have to have debate. You have to, um, you know, really drive down, dive down into the details to figure out what is the best schedule uh, for your own particular network. And so our needs are, are you know, are, could be potentially different um, than what our competitors' needs are. Well, you guys can um, find the schedule. Well, I mean, I guess you could Google it. You can find that pretty easily. Um, where else? Fox Sports PR Twitter account? Yes, and I think Stu and I have both each tweeted this out. You can find it on we our Twitter feed as well. Out. And then there's some great sites out there that if you want to see the whole, you know, with all of the networks combined, if you want to see, like, where the TV schedule is at this point, or um, you know, at once we get into the season and they are announcing games, you know, twelve days or six days at a time. This is actually my favorite one: LSUFootball.net/slash/TV schedule. It's an LSU football site, but for whatever reason, they decided to start doing the authoritative college football TV schedule for the whole country. That's my recommendation there. Um, Derek, repeat guest. Um, we, we have a t-shirt we said, no, we don't, we don't really have anything to give you, unfortunately, but we appreciate your time and, uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks guys. Appreciate your time as well. Thank you, Derek. All right. Thanks to Derek for coming on. I was just kind of, when the schedule came out, it kind of, I don't know about you. It just kind of like got the juices flowing. Like, oh yeah, college football is almost here. You know, now we have actually some, you know, we can actually look and see, well, these are the games I'll be watching weeks one, two, and three. I know. I mean, it, it becomes real, and that's that's a cool thing because we spend so much time in the minutia and speculating on this and that and spring football stories and whatever. So it's a good thing. Uh, ready for the mailbag? Let's do it. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. This question is from Trevor Yardley. Hi, guys. Love the show. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, I had this thought during the bowl season but never got around to emailing you. Do you think it would be beneficial for everybody if the group of five became their own division, had their own championship game? I would love it, and I think it would bring more excitement to those teams rather than playing in cheesy bowl games. So that idea has been proposed by the athletic director at NIU, Sean Frazier, and it has been pretty universally shot down by people uh, involved in the group of five conferences. But I like it, you know, but I'm a realist. Those teams are never going to make the playoff. 
Um, they're going to become increasingly marginalized. Never say never, Stu. They're just, they're not. (laughs) You know, I suppose if Houston had gone undefeated last year. Yeah, Houston could have. Houston could have. You can't say never. They're most likely not going to make it. They're 99% most likely not going to make the playoff. And as so, like he says, you know, I mean, look, a lot of teams have moved up from FCS to FBS and given up, you know, playing for a national championship to playing to get into the uh, Dollar General Bowl. But I would just think, you know, you, you see how poor, how, how awful the attendance is at some of the like the MAC games, the MAC weeknight games, and whatnot. I just think people would be more engaged if their teams were actually playing for a championship. Yeah, I think that's. Uh... I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of conflicted on this, I'll be honest. You know, when I look at the team that probably off the top of my head, who I think is who has, you know, good momentum, has a chance to make a run at, you know, the top 10. You know, I look at USF, what Charlie Strong inherits. The only thing is when you look at what their schedule is, unlike Houston where they had, you know, some marquee games non-conference, that's not where USF is right now. So I, I think it's just so many things have to come into play. Um, well, the main thing I, is there has to be an acceptance that I fully understand is tough. Like you are basically admitting that you're inferior. And I don't think most, you know, these guys are competitors. They don't want to like just yeah, it would gladly officially like, accept second tier status. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I like the way it is now more than the other way. I, I guess I do. So that's fair enough. We keep getting emails about that uh, Athlon top 50 of the last 50 years. I guess it's a great discussion uh, point. Ryan, who is a Gators fan, it should be noted. Bruce and Stu, hold on a minute. So both of you had Peyton Manning ranked above Danny Werfel in your rankings. And of course, Manning ended up above Werfel in the final list as well. Is this more on what Manning did in the NFL? Because Werfel was by far the better player in college. The only stat that Manning has over Werfel in college is career passing yards. Werfel has more touchdowns, better passer rating, better yards per attempt, more SEC championships, four more national titles won, and beat Manning head-to-head all three times they faced each other. Pretty convincing argument. Yeah, look, I I think this is... You know, uh, look, I, I would have had a Johnny Manziel above both of them. You know, I mean, he's making a good point. Like, I was not huge on Peyton Manning here either. So I wasn't huge on Danny Werfel. By the way, you could have Gino Toretta on there if you want to start throwing them on too. Well, Danny Werfel at the time, you know, part of that Spurrier funding on offense, he was putting up stats that were rarely seen from quarterback, and he was leading them to those SEC titles. And, yes, he always had Peyton Manning's number. So I guess it's possible that the Peyton Manning NFL factor, you know, I mean, Werfel wasn't an NFL quarterback. Peyton Manning was a great NFL quarterback. I mean, I don't know how that doesn't, you know, I don't know how that doesn't. At you least, didn't have you didn't have Ty Detmer on that list, you know. I mean, I don't know Ty how Detmer. that doesn't come into play. I don't know how you can com- just completely separate that out. You know, I think that's why Barry Sanders was so high. I think that's why Lawrence Taylor is so high. Is that possibly why? Ronnie Lott is so high. You know, a lot of these guys, it's hard to separate their NFL from their college career. It is. I mean, look, I, I made the case Anthony Munoz. I mean, he's arguably the greatest NFL uh, ta- offensive tackle in the history of the game. I don't know if he was that you No, know, I don't think he was that way coming out of what he did at USC. Again, I mean, there's guys who had huge careers. 
I mean, Graham Harrell was we never mentioned him. Ty Detmer never mentioned him. Um, you know, Colt McCoy was another one. Okay, next up. By the way, I didn't say it off the top. You can send your emails to the Audible Pod at gmail.com. Hey guys. Oh wait, it's your turn. <laughs> hey guys, been hooked on the podcast for a few months. Can't wait to hear the analysis and breakdown when the season gets started. Some buddies and I got our undergrad degrees at CSU and CU Boulder, respectively. We don't know what real college football atmosphere is or looks like. We're, we're thinking about taking a trip to see a big-time program college football game this year. What is one primetime matchup you're looking forward to seeing, college game day or non-conference, etc.? What is the best tailgate fan experience, city fan base, food, etc.? Thanks. Keep up the great work. Let me know if you ever need an intern. From Ben. Well, to the second part, I always say for best tailgate experience, LSU. Uh, it's it's like going into another country almost. It's just so unique from anywhere else in college football. The accents are different. The cuisine is different. They, and they just take tailgating so seriously. So if that's what you're looking for, that would be my uh, first choice. Yeah. And is the Alabama-LSU game there? This no, it's in, it's in Alabama. Okay. But surely there will be some LSU primetime games. Well, we just talked about the schedule. Derek, what primetime matchup are you most looking forward to seeing? Uh, the game I'm most looking forward to, and again, this is going to sound self-serving, but because there has been so much drama around uh, around Jim Harbaugh all year, and he still has yet to beat the school arch rival, Ohio State. Uh, there was a great game last year. Now, it's a, not a primetime game. It's a noon game. But I think this is a must-win game. And considering they have so few returning starters back, uh, that's going to be a tough hill to climb to be, beat a really talented you know, veteran Ohio State team. But to me, that I start with that one just because of the two coaches and where they are. And quite frankly, when you look at you know how great Alabama has been, you know, I don't know who the next best team in the SEC is right now. I mean, do you feel like there's one that's a, a top five caliber right now? I don't think there is. No. Here's my here would be my suggestion to him. Now, the time the kickoff time has not been announced, but what about Florida State at Clemson? I mean, there's a very good chance that's going to be for a playoff spot. And I went to my first game in Death Valley last year. It is every bit worth the hype uh, or lives up to the hype with the running down the hill. And just, you know, it's just such a fantastic atmosphere. That is a great tailgating place. So you could check. I think he could, he and his friends could check off all the boxes if they made it to that. Now, I don't know what kind of funds they have because the kind of games we're talking about, obviously it will be quite a hot ticket. Yeah, that is a great choice. I really think it, you know, it's, it's going to be very compelling, awesome atmosphere, everything. Good ones, too. Okay, moving on to Clint. Hi, Stu and Bruce. It seems like every week we get a Baylor-related question. I understand why. Hey, Stu and Bruce, love the pod. Appreciate you guys talking college football every week, even though it's the off season. Not just every week, twice a week. Our recent mailbag question asked about Baylor football, and in the wake of everything that has happened, would Baylor ever get rid of its football team? That got me to thinking. Do you think the NCAA will ever give out the death penalty again? I know after acting too quickly and overstepping its bounds in the Penn State scandal, they don't want to get involved with these criminal scandals again. But it just seems that things happening today are much worse than what happened at SMU. I think Clint is right, but I don't think, just from everything we've heard of from the NCAA and from people close to the NCAA, that they're going to they're gonna bring back the death penalty. So I don't see it happening. 
Uh, um, you know, I, I gotta admit, whenever I see this, you know, this, this one, um, the part that seems to really piss me off a lot in the wake of the Baylor stuff is Liberty. Yeah. You know, when, you you know brought I mean, that up a few times. as bad as, as bad as things are at Baylor and they are horrific, you know, the fact that Liberty turned around and hired Baylor AD and, and made the statements they did in the wake of it is shameful, you know, and it's, it's, it's. It sucks that the NCAA just like kind of like, hey, waved him in to to move up in college football and kind of went around some of their own protocols to do so. Yeah, I mean, obviously the NCAA can't tell them who you should or shouldn't hire as your AD, but this happened at a time when they were deciding whether or not to let them move up to FBS and to do it um, in an accelerated timeline, without, I believe. Without, without any conference without, affiliation. That's what it was, without a conference affiliation, which is supposed the, to be the rule. That's bullshit. And I think the NCAA needs to look in the mirror if they're going to be pious about anything like that. Um, you know, and that's what you're associating with. Liberty, you know, Liberty doesn't give a shit about anything about decorum because they bring on that AD after what, what he did or what was connected to him. And I just think it's just a bad look all around. So, um, so, Look, I agree. I agree with the tenor of Clint's thing, but just from what we know from the NCAA, the answer I think is going to be a no. And and I agree with him that obviously a situation like what happened at Baylor and what happened at Penn State, I mean, these are real life tragedies that far eclipse you know players getting a Cadillac or whatnot. Now, if you watched the SMU thirty for thirty a few years ago, because I didn't live through that era, so this was really my you know the best exposure I've had to what happened with SMU. If you can narrow your vision just to kind of conventional NCAA rules, the ones they actually are able to enforce, that's pretty egregious. <laughs> you know, we haven't really seen anything like that in these in, in the modern era where not only were they paying guys, but it was an organized system. They were keep you know, they, 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 they had it down on paper. When the coach left for the Patriots, he left it behind. Okay, here's what you owe to these guys. The NCAA stepped in once, penalized them for it, said, don't do it again. And they kept doing it, and that's when the death penalty happened. So, I'm not trying to compare it to Baylor or Penn State by any means, but in the grand, but if you want to, why did that case get this most severe of, of penalties in terms of like extra benefits cases? I don't, I don't think anything comes close to that, and I don't think you'll see that again uh, because these schools have too much at stake and too much at risk. Another reason why you probably won't see the death penalty. I mean, not only did they have the death penalty then, you know, it was not uncommon, and I'm thinking the undefeated Auburn team with Terry Bowden, 1993, to give them a TV ban. Or the year Andre Ware was mm -hmm. on the Heisman, they yeah. were on a TV ban. There's no way you could do that now. You would, because these teams are on TV every single week, there's so much money tied to it, and you would also be penalizing the team that they'd be playing that week. So you can't do that, and I, for the same reason, I don't think you could, you could realistically shut down a program uh i mean if you you know just be clear i'm not saying Ole miss deserves a death penalty by any means but let's just say it turned out that things were 10 times worse than we thought and they decided to give them the death penalty that negatively impacts every other school in the sec it doesn't it doesn't i mean if Ole miss stopped playing college football for two years I don't know if the, I think that actually would probably positively impact its arch rival. Yeah, that would be the one school that would definitely, definitely be all for that. But like, I mean, that's unless they then turned around and replaced them with someone for two years. That's 
totally messes up your schedule. That's fewer conference games. That's fewer you know, networks are paying for a certain number of conference games. Um, it's possibly less bowl revenue. Look, I mean, I'm not saying just like you said with the playoff, never say never. But yeah, I'll say 99% sure there's not going to be another death penalty. Yeah. Uh, uh, next question, Mike Osterider in Pennsylvania. Few episodes you guys talked about coaches quote going out on top and how few really do that. That got me thinking about successful coaches who are entrenched at their current schools, but still years from retirement. Names like Dan Mullen, Mike Gundy, and Ken Niamatololo come to mind. What is their next career stop for guys like this? I can't see a guy like Mullen riding off into the sunset at at Mississippi State. Well, Mullen and Gundy have certainly tried to leave at various times, and in Mullen's yeah, case, Mullen's he just a lot. yeah, <laughs> yeah, like he just can't get the jobs. Like I don't know, you know, we've heard it at least on one occasion where he just kind of rubbed people the wrong way, but it just seems like he's he talks to schools and then he doesn't. They end up passing on him. Yeah, and Gundy, you know, the, there's been friction with the administration. Uh, I'd be surprised if Mike Gundy doesn't end up someplace else sooner than later. You know, he's done a really good job there. They have a really good team. But I just think sooner or later there's going to be a, a pretty big job that he will get that he will go off to. I don't know if it's going to be a Big 12 job or an SEC job. I would guess it's going to be one of those two, though. Uh Kenny Amatolo is a little different in terms of, you know, BYU, there was interest and some of the things that went in that were involved, if he were to be the head coach, I think were non-starters from what I've heard. So that didn't happen. I could see, you know, those guys are so far removed from retirement um, that I, I think they will all have second act somewhere. Um, you wouldn't, but I, you, the, the first two I agree with. It seemed like BYU was, I mean, it was the one school that would have made a lot of sense for him for many reasons. He even, I mean, it was one of the, one of the, you know, more unique courtships I've seen where it was just completely out in the open. Like he announced after the Army Navy game, oh yeah, I'm going to go interview there and see what it's like. And then went there for a couple of days and came back, decided not to take it. You know, now you think like, Next year, three uh, years, I don't know. He's going to turn around and go to where? Somewhere in the Pac-12. Okay. I think he. I think he would be intrigued somewhere in the Pac-12, and he would be able to recruit some other other kids because of his, his connections out on the Pacific uh, Northwest and maybe uh, out in Hawaii as well and in American Samoa. And I think he would. I think you'd probably see. Give a, get a, a better sense of just how how I don't know how good of a coach he is because we know he's a really good coach. Um, so let's I'm, say I mean, let's say he he Jim Moore gets fired and he gets the UCLA job. Um, is he going to run the triple option at UCLA? No, I don't think he would. I think he would run something a little different. That's where it's so hard to forecast for him because he's that is what he's had so much success with. I realize it's not like his whole career he has done that. I mean he does that because of the school he's at and uh having learned it from paul johnson but i mean that would be just be whatever he ends up doing i guess he could you know a lot of the modern spread offenses borrow heavily from those concepts anyway but that that's why it's hard for me to see him leaving to a use some sort of powerhouse perceived powerhouse at least school like that i always thought if he left it would be for uh, something that he had a particular personal connection to like byu 
Yeah, look, I, one of the, the one of the people I think is the smartest, one of the three or four smartest people I know in football thinks Ken Niamatolo is like the smartest football coach he knows. I, um, he may well be right about that. So we'll see. It's a good question. Gordon Cameron, Burlington, Ontario. Good day, gentlemen. With the benefit of hindsight, what were some of the worst coaching firing decisions ever made in college football? Are there any at the time of the firing and or the hiring of his replacement that seems so boneheaded that it just left you gobsmacked? I have one on this that came right to mind and because it kind of hit close to home just because I spent a bunch of time there. And that would be David Cutcliffe getting booted by Ole Miss. Um, now this goes back to Pete Boone, who was, and I've said this before on the podcast about the only thing that, that David Cutcliffe, the guy who followed him, Ed Ogeron, the guy who followed him, Houston not have in common, aside, I guess, from them all being white men, uh, is that they all did not really like Pete Boone, the AD they had. And David Cutcliffe, one year removed from leading Ole Miss to a 10 and three season and top 15 finish. Uh, went four and seven and got fired. I mean, it was just, and this is, keep in mind, Ole Miss had had a, a lot of recent history before uh, Cutcliffe with scandals. And you had a, a very straight shooter, clean cut guy who knew the SEC, and they ran him out of there. And, and he's done a very, very good job at Duke. And, you know, look, I mean, I think that was a boneheaded move by Ole Miss. That was going to be my first answer as well. I mean, they spent a decade basically trying to, uh, um, get back to the to the perch that he led them to. I think another one would be Nebraska firing Frank Solich. I don't know if he would have continued to be their coach for another 15 years like he has been at Ohio, but they had gone to the national championship game, you know, what, 2001. Then they had a, a very uncharacteristic year by Nebraska standards the next year, and that's when he started to feel the heat. Then he goes 9-3, and three, now, we have seen more recently some coaches get fired for going 9-3. and He got fired for going 9-3, and and just compounded by the fact that Steve Peterson, the AD at the time, a not well-regarded AD in the industry, um, replaced him with Bill Callahan. That, that, that was one of the all-time worst coaching changes I think you could, you could have. Come on now. You, you got close to the fire now. I heard you throw the name Steve Peterson out there. There's somebody else you're leaving off that needs to be thrown into the discussion. Go ahead. Don't play dumb, Stu. Come on. You're saying another coach that worked for him in another school that doesn't have a favorable opinion of him? Yeah. And come on now. Another coach, kind of charismatic, reeks of reeks of, reeks of uh, cigar smoke from time to time. Yeah, I would say that um, there have been plenty of people, himself, that person included, that was have... was fired after after going after winning twenty six games in the previous three years and going fifteen and six in his conference and it's was fired. So it seems like Steve Peterson's common thread is he he has a short leash. He fires guys as soon as it starts to go south, and then he just has a terrible terrible track record with who he replaces them with. Yeah, let yeah, me give you one, let me give you one other one. You may disagree, but. When I, when I wrote my book, now 10 years ago, I had a whole chapter about this kind of stuff. And this is one of the examples I used. And that was Minnesota firing Glenn Mason, who led them to... I mean, Minnesota had been awful for years before yeah. he got there. I'm looking at now, led them to... By the time he got fired, he had led them to five straight bowl games. He went 10-3 and in 2003. And if you recall, there wasn't even really any notion that he would be fired until they blew the biggest lead in bowl history to your guy Leach in the Insight Bowl, and then he got fired. 
and replaced with by with Tim Brewster. Yeah, I know. That's that's the rubbing salt in the eyes of the Minnesota fans. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. I have a question for you on this one. This guy did a terrific job where he was, but you know, in the last couple of years, he really ran out of gas. Um, but he was at Syracuse for I don't know, seventeen years, fifteen years. Paul Pasqualoni. Was it time just to move on, or was that something they should have let him keep coaching? Um. You know, now that's one of those things where, you know, given where Syracuse is now, it's, you know, easy to go back and say, well, how the heck could you have fired a guy who went, uh, won the Big East three to- three straight years at one point with Donovan McNabb, 10 and 3 in 2001. But then after that, 4 and 8, 6 and 6, 6 and 6. I can't say that, that, uh, that I fault them for that, even though there was another one where it, <laughs> the replacement made it that much worse. Remember who they replaced him with? Uh, yes. Um, Pete Carroll's guy. Oh, I got, uh, who's at Texas? Greg, Greg, Greg Robinson. Uh, Robinson. Yeah. Greg Robinson, who was a total disaster there. Pasqualoni resurfaced a few years ago at UConn and that did not go well either. In the short term, here's one that like I thought of too came up. Uh, Tony Levine, three years, they pulled the plug fast. Now they did bring in time to grab Tom Herman. Yeah. That one I worked out well for them. Helps. Yeah, but uh, when you're three years and you, you know have a winning record, I don't know. That was that was another one that came to mind, and none like not like quite like the Cutcliffe one. Like I, I think that one stood out to me again. Like I said, it hit close to home. Um, I feel like we're missing a couple of. Well, I feel like once this goes out, people are going to remind us about like we're kind of talking about guys who were good coaches, but like not national championship coaches by any means. And I think people are going to remind us about sometime in the 60s when somebody, some coaching icon got fired and the school lived to regret it. But off the top of my head, I can't. I mean, Woody Hayes got fired for punching a player. You know, there, a lot yeah, of guys, I mean, like, frankly, get, got fired for a lot of really great something. coaches. Yeah, got something like, off the— I mean, look, yeah. you mentioned Leach before. Leach got fired at Texas Tech. I mean, the program hadn't been the same since he left either. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com and please subscribe to The Audible. On Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time.